Let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And today we get to climb out of the pit. We have been wallowing in the pit of darkness as we be from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. But today we begin to see the light. And what a glorious light it is. Today the, our scripture reading will be Romans chapter 3 verse 21 to the end of the chapter. The focus of our time will be shorter than that, but that we're going to read the whole chapter because we will have at least three sermons on this particular text. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, when whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in this divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do then we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for us Verses like the ones we're going to be looking at in this time. They are a gift beyond anything we could ever dare hope or imagine. And they are so counterintuitive to the way that we normally process and think things are and how they are to be. And so we pray asking that your Holy Spirit will work in us in such a way as to give us life and light and hope and help us see Jesus and him only. And we pray that Christ will be exalted, that people will walk away from this service not speaking of anything but how great Jesus is. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said previously, before reading our text, all human beings of every race 
of every rank, of every creed and culture, Jews and Gentiles, immoral or the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious are, without any exception, sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That was the terrible human predicament described in Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. There was no ray of light, no flicker even of hope, no prospect of any kind of rescue. And so it sort of left us hanging. But the most blessed conjunction in the whole Bible is given to us in verse 21, but now, but now. Something has happened that gives us glorious hope and even joy and even rejoicing. Paul suddenly breaks in. God himself has intervened. Now seems to have sort of a threefold reference. That word could refer to the logical, that is the developing argument, the chronological, that is this present time, and the eschatological, that is, the new age has already penetrated the present age and has now arrived. All of that is wrapped up in that word now. After the long, dark night, the sun has risen and a new day has dawned, and the world is flooded with light, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. Do you know it? Has it been made known to you? Now, I decided to take a little different tack on this particular sermon. I have preached on, I have taught on, I have lectured on, I have drilled over and over the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But I have decided today to be eminently clear and practical what difference does that make to your life? What does it mean to say that God's righteousness has been revealed? What is righteousness? And so I have three simple points to this sermon that I want to communicate to you today as we spend our time together uh, sitting under the teaching of God's Word. And that is righteousness, why we need it. It is the thing we need more than our next breath. Righteousness. Uh, why we need it. Number two, what it is. What is righteousness? Because I have a sneaking suspicion as I talk to people, you know, I try not to hole up in my study and in my desk and uh, uh, avoid real people and real unbelievers and real technicolor sinners. I kind of like to mix with them. And I kind of like to talk to them, especially about Jesus and about the gospel. And I'm thinking of that kind of person today. When I'm thinking of this message, I am thinking of, okay, Make it concrete for me. Make it practical. Tim, when you tell me that the righteousness of Christ is now yours, what in the world are you talking about? I don't even know what righteousness is. I don't connect with that. It doesn't make any sense to me. It just sounds like a churchy word. It's archaic. It's something uh, I've heard of. But when I think of righteousness, I think of the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Or I think of the self-righteous person, my next-door neighbor, who's so self-righteous I can barely stand to look at her. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. A thousand times no. That is not what I, or the Bible, am talking about. So what are we talking about? Well, 
One of the things the Bible often does for us in very profound and practical ways is Paul here interjects a comment in verse 20. He says, but, and then he reverses the statement which has gone before him and uh, basically says there is hope because before, if you look up at verse 20, he said, for the, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so now Paul has done a reversal. Something is far more glorious here than anything we could ever do for ourselves. Something has been done for us. The law is, has never been intended to be a means by which we right ourselves with God. And so... Here, the focus is on righteousness as a gift, righteousness as a provision. And Paul now turns from the black cloth of human sin to hold up the glittering diamond of the gospel. And he begins to talk about righteousness. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, The gospel reveals a righteousness from God. Or in 321, the righteousness of God. It is a righteousness displayed, but it is also a righteousness granted. Our translations sometimes obscure this, but the words righteous and righteousness and justified is exactly the same Greek word. Dikaiosune in the Greek. So when you see the word righteousness and you see the word justified, exactly the same word. So we could say, what does being justified mean? How does justification work in our experience? And so because of that, verse 21 could read, but now a justification from God has been made known. And verse 24 could be translated, and our righteousness, as a verb, freely. Righteousness, and if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Righteousness in the Bible is equivalent to, in our day and time, a validating performance record. That is a record that I have accomplished, that has been approved, accepted, even acclaimed, and it's a record of my own, so it's a, a validating appro uh, approved uh, record. It's a way by which I get validation. Now, let me tell you something. Every single person in this building is searching for righteousness. You just don't know you are, but you are. You long for that. You want that more than anything else in the world. When God created man in the garden, the first thing he said that was not good was what? It is not good for Adam to be what? Alone. In other words, we are made not as isolated monad units who don't need anybody, who don't want anybody, who don't need to connect with anybody. We can just hole up ourselves and live our lives totally curved in upon ourselves. But rather, the image of God in us creates us to long for connection with other people. We want to be a part of a community. We want to connect. We want a sense of being somebody. We want to feel like somebody uh, enjoys our presence. Uh, somebody values us as a human being. Somebody may even praise us or say good things about us. I mean, we long for that. We need that, and that is a legitimate need. The only problem is we can never get it from other people. 
Other people won't give you that. Nobody can give you the validation you need as a human being. Nobody can give you that. That is way outside of their ability to do. In other words, I need someone who matters more than anyone else uh, in the whole world, in the whole of existence, to tell me I have worth, to tell me that I count, to tell me that I matter, to tell me that I'm loved, to tell me that I'm precious to them. Every person needs that. And so every single person in this building is struggling for righteousness. We're all looking for justification to quiet the voice in us filled with doubt that we don't count or we don't matter. I'll open this up uh, uh, the further we go. Righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors for us. To clarify that, I might say it this way. When you want a job, what do you do? Well, in my day, you went to the want ads in the paper and you ask everybody you knew, do you know where I could get a job? Can you recommend me for a job? And you tried to find one. Today, you go online and you develop something called a resume, right? When you get a job, you need a resume. It has all your experiences and skills that make you hope you are worthy of the position. You send it to your employer. Uh, you, you say, look at this, accept me. Your record has nothing on it that disqualifies you from the job. And it has, you hope, everything that will qualify you for the job. So we do this in practical terms all the time. When you're looking for a job, you put together a re resume. Sometimes you may airbrush it a little bit. Sometimes you may say things in a vague way. But you're basically trying to match who you are, your skills, with what the job is, and that hiring me would be accepting me to fulfill the tasks that are in uh, relation to the job. So. That's exactly the same as seeking righteousness. Every religion, every culture has it the same way with whatever God they want or what long to serve. It's not a vocational record. It's a moral and spiritual record that you get out your performance record. And it's, if it's good enough, you are worthy of life with your God and you are accepted, and when Paul comes along and says, but now, for the first time in his history, and the last time in history, an unheard of approach to God has been revealed, a divine righteousness, the righteousness of God, a perfect record, is given to us. It is not something we develop, it's not something we build, it's not something we polish off ourselves. Everybody has a longing for acceptance for the one who matters most. And we do it in so many ways. We can do it with our career. We can do it with our children. We can do it with any aspect of our lives. We can turn that into a way in which we validate ourselves by our performance. And we hold our record up, and I count, I matter, I'm someone important because, what? I have this performance record. C.S. Lewis was once late to a meeting with his, the group of men that he spent time with. And you've all heard this before. Lewis came in and they were discussing world religions. And so somebody raised the question, what is the difference between Christianity and all the other religions in the world? And C.S. Lewis, Lewis said, that's easy. Grace. I would go even further. 
What is the difference of Christianity and every other religion in the world? Whether it's your religion, your made-up religion, your secularism, pretending not to be a worldview in a religion, but it's all everybody, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're all trying to validate yourself. You're all looking for a validating record. And I would say with C.S. Lewis, it's not just grace. It is grace, but the grace that it is is that God gives you a validating performance record that was accomplished for you in your place by Christ. <laughs> and you will never have a better record than he does. Get over it. You will not. Now, justification deals with many things. I'm going to talk about those. But that's what we long for. That's what we need. Have you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? That was real popular in churches because the main character was a Christian. But one of the runners in that race said, he was running a 100-meter race, and he said, I have... 10 seconds to justify my existence. Can you imagine being an Olympic athlete and you train for four years before the Olympic events happen and you do it every day and you're driven by it and you're constantly thinking about it and you're trying to improve, you're trying to get stronger, trying to get faster, trying to get better. And then you go, <laughs> I remember watching a weightlifter uh, I believe he was from the Soviet Union. He was a huge man. And uh, he came in second and got a silver medal. And when they gave him the silver medal, you know what he did with it? He threw it. I don't want it. I want to be the best. Now, when I was a kid, I wanted to be the best baseball player, the greatest running back, and the greatest point guard in the history of the world. And that was the driving force that got me out of bed every day. My mother often said, we could lock you boys in a padded cell, give you a ball, and you would be happy. That's all that we did day after day. And my dreams and my hopes were if I could only be that, if I could only arrive that, then people would pay attention to me. People would notice me. People would praise me. I might even get a standing ovation. And isn't that wonderful? Well, I'll tell you who deserves a standing ovation, and that's Jesus for fulfilling the law on your behalf, dying for your sins on the cross, and that standing ovation becomes yours once you're united with him by faith. God doesn't just tolerate you. He absolutely adores you because you are united to his son, and his record is your record, and it is ultimately validated because later in Romans chapter 4, Paul will say uh, he was... Uh, Buried because of my, he was crucified for my transgressions, raised again for my justification. And the fact of the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day in his ascension to heaven means God has accepted all the work that Jesus has done for those who believe in him, for the elect, and he is now at the right hand of heaven, and we are as accepted as he is. And his work for us passed whatever record validation needed. But think about this. The righteousness that Jesus gives us is not simply negative. It's also positive. Let's talk about that a little further. We know that Christ died for our sins. And that because of his death for our sins, and we'll see this unfolded in this passage, because of his death for our sins... Uh, we have been forgiven. 
And I don't want to play down forgiveness. Forgiveness is a glorious blessing. Forgiveness is sweet. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us, an infinite distance from his presence. Our sins are gone. They're cast into the depths of the sea. God turns his back on our sins. A little boy sitting in the Sunday school class heard the teacher say God turns his back on our sins, and he says, well, doesn't when he turns his back, can he turn around and look at them? And the uh, teacher was smart enough to say, no, when he turns around, his back turns with him. So God, <laughs> is, God has cast our sins in the depths of the sea. He has turned away from them. They have been completely punished and judged in the body of Christ. He talks about the word propitiation here, which is a word for sacrifice, which is a word for satisfaction. Christ has satisfied and emptied the wrath of God upon himself to save us. And that's wonderful. And being forgiven is wonderful. And I remember uh, reading bumper stickers. I don't like many Christian bumper stickers. Uh, most of them are half-truths, and this one is too. Did you ever see the bumper sticker, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? That's not true. Christians are forgiven and are perfect. We're perfect. It's not our validating performance record. It's the validated performance record Jesus has accomplished for us. Here's how I like to look at it. When God forgives me, he now says to me, you may go. You are forgiven, no punishment, no judgment for you for sin. You may go. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ accredited to my account is God saying to me, you may come. What does that mean? That means that God wants me. That God enjoys me. That God loves me. That when he looks at me, he sees his son as much as if Jesus was standing there. And that gives me what a glorious opportunity to be in his presence and to enjoy. You see, justification isn't merely having our sins forgiven, not merely the work of the cross, but it's also receiving a righteousness apart from our keeping of any standards we think we need to keep. Jesus kept the law for us. And because of that, we receive it. It's, it's like we not only are forgiven, but we've been given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Why? Because of Jesus. You don't think what he did when he came to save us is worthy of a Congressional Medal of Honor? It's worth far more than that. But that's what God sees when he looks for me. You'll never quit sinning. You'll never quit if you don't know Jesus loves you. And you don't know the Father loves you. And you don't know the Holy Spirit loves you. As long as judgment reigns in your thoughts and in your mind and in your heart and you think the jury's still out and God hadn't decided whether you're worthy enough or not, you're living in misery. You're in purgatory already. But the jury is in. God has declared it. God has said it. You are forever under my favor. You are forever right with me. And everything Jesus has done is now yours. Live like it. Don't be an orphan anymore. Don't be somebody who, describing myself, who used to try so hard. I believed in Nike theology and Avis theology. Nike is try harder. 
Avis is, what's Avis's slogan? Avis is try harder and Nike is what? Just do it. Yeah. That's, that's the way most people try to live the Christian life. Try harder, just do it. Well, tell me how that works. How's that working for you? It's not. You live in the swamp and mire of the backwash of your own guilt and your own sins, and you feel like when God looks at you, he doesn't really like you. He's pretty disgusted with you. You're such a sorry Christian. You can't live up to anything. And if you relate, relate to God ever on the basis of who you are and what you've accomplished, my friend, you need to wake up. You need to see the light. You need a spiritual breakthrough in which you understand. Have you ever, ever had a precious baby? Uh, that's, a, that's to me a synonym. A, a newborn baby is precious. You can't look at any of them. Some people say they're ugly babies. I've never seen one because I'm usually standing there with a the mother and I would never say no. <laughs> All babies are precious and you just want to take care. Of, that's how God sees you. He rejoices over you with singing. He extols you with a loud voice. Don't tell me God loves you as a simply sort of cold, sterile love. It's with passion, as it were. And you now have the validating performance record of Christ. Well, pastor, that's a nice message, but I'm not a religious person. I'm a secular person. But regardless of who you are, you do the exact same thing. I beg to differ. You are looking for righteousness. It may not be in a religious way, but it's in another way. Everybody wants it. You want your life to matter. You want a raison d'etre. You want your life to count. You want to win a gold medal, so to speak. Have you ever uh, thought about people who are like Tony Bennett, 96, had Alzheimer's and yet was still trying to sing? Have you ever been to see a performer who you loved when they were younger and now they're kind of old and past prime and you ask yourself the question, why are they doing it? I mean, they got more money than they could ever give away and know what to do with. Why are they still doing it? Oh, a pastor they love. No, they're probably trying to justify themselves. I need one more million. I need one more hit movie. I need one more hit song. I need one more whatever. Because you can never fill up the hole with what you do. Only Jesus can do that for you. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? How liberate? Why would anybody not want this? Why would anybody not believe this? Why would people not be beating on the doors to get in? This is the most glorious, gracious gift that anyone could ever enjoy. Everybody wants to justify their existence. Everybody needs to feel that they have worth, that what they do is worthwhile, that it matters, Then they keep doing it, and that they, they say, That's, this is why I'm here, this is why I exist, this is what I do. And so that's what righteousness is, and that's what everybody needs it. But what is it again? Everybody struggles for righteousness, for validation, for worth, for acceptability. And, uh, you know, people who uh, try to justify their existence go on with it for the rest of their lives. 
and uh, they try to be good people. They try to care about other people. They try not to be too judgmental, yet they are. But the Bible leaves them at a place where their mouth is shut and the struggle is real. But what is the end of the struggle? And the end of the struggle is justification freely. We are justified freely, which means without a cause. There is nothing in me that God could ever see that would make him want to accept me and justify me. What God accepts and justifies is Jesus. And I'm connected to him by faith, and when he looks at me, he sees me united to Jesus, and I am beautiful. I am beautiful. If we ever saw a creature glorified, we'd fall on our face before them and want to worship them. Even though they're a creature and not the creator, even though they're human and not God, even though they're glorified humanity. The gospel is so easily misunderstood. The gospel, as I said earlier, is far more than pardoning our sins, far more than being a new moral person. Pardon is wonderful. Grace is great. Forgiveness is wonderful. But he bestows a status upon us that is amazing. Uh, and so... His love for us is infinitely more than mere pardon, a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, his perfect righteousness is like this. What I am and what I have done, he has become, and what who he is, uh, although he's deity and we are not, what he has done for me becomes mine, 2 Corinthians 5.21 which tells us he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us so that we could become what? The righteousness of God in him. And so uh, Christ in reality was a, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In prehistory, he faced down our enemies. So what are you getting? Uh, when you receive Christ, not just a good uh, record, uh, not just being a goody-two-shoes, not just being a nice person, but you get braveness, you get courage, you get love, you get assurance, you become self-sacrificial, you become noble. His medals become our medals, and if we receive all that he has done and are treated infinitely more greater than just mere pardon, it's not moral goodness, it is the righteousness of Christ not our moral goodness. Um, evangelicals and high church people both misunderstand the gospel. And I was an evangelical for a good portion of my life, and it wasn't total wasted time. <laughs> I mean, there were some good things I learned, but one thing I did not learn is anything I'm telling you today. I never heard this. And so I was out there trying harder, promising the Lord that it would be better I also envisioned him in my mind laughing at me going, no, it won't. I know you better than you know you. You just need to learn something. But anyway, evangelicals, have you ever heard anybody do this? They'll say, invite Jesus into your heart. That's all over the place, isn't it? All you need to do, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will enter in with him, and he will sup with me, and I will sup with him. So all you need to do is hear the door knocking and open it up and receive Jesus? No, because you think 
Well, I did that, and I crowned Jesus Lord, and I crowned him king, and I surrendered everything to him, and I was really committed. Do you hear what you're saying? You were saying that I did all I could to be righteous, and God makes up the difference by giving me Jesus. You got nothing to offer. Let me tell you how a person really gets saved. When Jesus comes to the door and knocks, most people put the deadbolt on. And then he, they hear the knocking again, they put the chain on. They hear the knocking again, they put the other lock on that they spent $500 for. They hear the knocking, they push the couch in front of the door. They hear the knocking, they push the bureau in front of the door, the chest of drawers, every chair in the living room, all stacked up in front of the door, and they go hide in the basement. How does a person get saved? The Holy Spirit comes down to the basement as a fire and smokes them out. What does he do? He regenerates them. He gives them a new heart, and all of a sudden, they begin to see the light, and they run from the basement up the stairs. They fling the door open. They throw the chairs out of the way. They throw the table out of the way. They throw the chest of drawers out of the way. They throw the bureau out of the way. Then they break through all the locks, sling the door open, and jump in the arms of Jesus. That's how you get saved. But the other way you get saved is not you do your part, he does. You got no part to do. Except what I'm going to talk about in a minute, which is passive, the empty hand of faith. Faith is that which justifies us. The smells and bells and liturgical people think that by coming to church, going through a liturgy, receiving the sacrament, God does the rest. There's far more to it than that. We are justified by what? Faith. And this is the third point of our sermon, how we get it. How do we receive it? How do we get it? First, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteous receiving faith has one object and one object alone, and that is Christ. President Eisenhower is reputed to have once said that American wars founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. This is a typical view today. Any other is seen as dogmatic and undemocratic, but it is the object of belief rather than the belief itself which is the crucial issue. Please, if you take your children to see Disney movies, tell them don't do what's in your heart and don't trust, don't have faith in faith. Neither one of those things will do a debt gum thing for you at all. It's the object of your faith that makes your faith worthwhile. I may have a great unshakable faith in the ability of the feathers strapped on my arms to fly me from the U.S. to the U.K., but I put my faith in the wrong place. Equally, I may just barely have enough faith to board a transatlantic flight, trembling nervously as I do, and the object of my faith will accomplish what it promises. It is not faith that saves. It's not even faith in God that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves. Second, it cannot come through our own actions and efforts. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. We were made in God's image to bring him glory and to enjoy the glory of his praise. In our sin, we have lost that glory, and we cannot live in the presence of God enjoying his approval. 
Third, it is given freely. It's very important because it's possible to think of faith as a kind of work, a calling of some psychological feeling uh, about God. Some people think that faith is an intense attitude of surrender for a state of certainty or confidence. But Paul takes care to say it comes to us freely or without a cause. The word freely means without a cause in a way that is totally and wholly unwarranted, given or done for no reason. We must not fall prey to the subtle mistake of thinking that our faith actually saves us, as though in the Old Testament God wanted obedience for salvation through the law, and now he's changed the requirement, and all he wants now is faith. And faith becomes a work, and faith becomes meritorious, and that is not saving faith. That is not saving faith at all. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Faith is coming with empty hands when a child asks his mother for something, trusting that she will give it. His asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. This is crucial. If you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and start looking at your faith. And when you see doubts, it will rattle you. And when you don't feel it quite as clearly or as intensely, it will worry you. What has happened? You've turned your faith into a work, and no one will be justified by the works of the law. Faith is the only instrument by which we receive our salvation and not the cause of our salvation. If you don't see this, then you will think you have something to boast about. The reason I'm a Christian is because I have faith, and I put it in Jesus, and my neighbor did not. No, the reason you're a Christian is because God the Holy Spirit put fire in the basement and smoked you out. That's why you're a Christian. He came to you in his mercy and in his tenderness and spoke to your soul just as God spoke to the chaos the tohu, vabohu, the emptiness of creation, and spoke the world into existence and then formed the world and filled the world, so the Holy Spirit hovers over our hearts as the Holy Spirit hovered over the chaos and creation and makes us a new creation. He creates in us new life. One of the right ways to understand whether or not you really understand salvation biblically is to ask the question, what comes first, first, faith or regeneration? And if you say faith, keep listening harder. It's regeneration. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Somebody's got to resurrect us. And that's what Jesus does. Just what Jesus does. Through the Spirit, he calls us to himself. And even the faith, even the, the puny empty hand that I stick out to receive it is a gift of God. Any desire to repent is a gift of God. Sola Deo Gloria. All glory belongs to him. Now, what about all your boasting? I'm going to preach an entire sermon on boasting because I know something about it. But what about your boasting? Boasting is you taking credit for something that happened. And because of that, you're better than other people. 
I had a good friend uh, who was an elder uh, and a dear friend of mine, and now he's a PCA pastor in New Orleans, Louisiana. His name is Mark, and his last name is Offerth. And Mark and I were similar kindred brother spirits, whatever you want to say. We used to go to the Waffle House, which sad to my soul, there's not one here. Any of you got enough money to do it, please buy a Waffle House franchise. Get Greg Toth to go in with you so that we can have a decent place to eat a waffle around here. So I took Mark to the restaurant, we were talking, and we started ragging on people. I mean, in the worst kind of way. We were talking bad about people. And then all of a sudden, it was as if the Spirit of God fell upon our table. Mark stopped. He looked at me and said, yeah, we're a whole lot better than them. No, we're not. One of the things that bothers me about the Reformation tradition, and I'm sure I bother people in the Reformation tradition, and I love the Reformation tradition, and I'm in it, but it's not self-critical. We love to criticize everybody else by our standards. Why do we have what we have? Who gave it to us? God. Why do we take credit for it? Why do we boast in it? It's ridiculous. It's invalid. God forbid, Paul says, that I should boast in anything but what? The cross of Christ. That's what you boast in. And that work of Christ upon the cross that work as the one who fulfilled our role as the second Adam in the covenant of the works who executed absolute obedience. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' works. And once we receive that, we are liberated. We are free. Some people think too free, huh? Well... Lord, help us see, help us see, help us see that right before our very eyes is the greatest gift that ever could be given to anybody anywhere. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. It truly, truly is the best good news ever. And I pray that you'll open our eyes and open our hearts to see it and want it and desire it. Now, fathers, we continue to worship today. May we give as people who are overwhelmed and just hilariously joyful because of what you've done in our place and for us. And we pray this in the name, the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.